Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 28. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of Lima Charlie's community Slack channel. Before we get going with the intel chat, I just want to let everybody know that we're going to be switching up the format of the show a little. We're going to be increasing the frequency at which we publish episodes, but keep each one a little more focused. Each episode will be limited to a single segment, so for example, today we're only going to be doing an Intel chat, the next episode is going to be an interview, and the one after that might be a hacker history. We think this will let people self-select what they want to listen to better and increase the overall experience of the show. We really appreciate everybody sticking with us week after week as we evolve the show, and hope you're getting value out of it. And now my Intel chat with Matt. Another week, another set of bad actors, exploits, and vulnerabilities. Thanks for being here to talk through the latest information coming out of the Intel channel on the Lima Charlie community Slack. It's great to have you, Matt. Hey, Chris. Glad to be back here. Looking forward to it. And again, as always, a huge thanks to our community Slack members for keeping the conversation going and getting us all up to date on the latest and greatest of the worst out there. This first one gave me a what year is it moment. Uh, over 1 million WordPress sites have been infected by the Balata injector malware, which exploits themes and plugin vulnerabilities to breach sites, steal data, create fake admin accounts, and maintain persistent access. I swear I've read a similar headline to this every year for the last 15 years. What do we know about it, and how is it that WordPress is still so vulnerable? Yeah, so this goes back to, we've talked about this before uh, in this podcast. I think this goes back to, remember, it's a it's a collection of software. It's a collection of code. It's a collection of libraries. So you're going to have vulnerabilities out there just in code. That's just the way it is, number one. And folks also tie their WordPress instances into a lot of things as well. So it's possible that I might have a WordPress instance tied into a database or a third-party library. And that database or that library has some sort of vulnerability. Long story short, once some of those things get identified, they are then going to be subsequently exploited. Uh, in this case, the Balada Injector malware campaign uh, has actually been going on since 2017. Um, and, and what's happening is, you know, they're just utilizing WordPress sites to deploy perhaps maybe first stage or kind of catching sites, if you will. I call them like, I don't want to say the word phishing. It's the wrong one, but lure sites, for lack of a better term, where I can get people to maybe click on things or perhaps provide information that they shouldn't have, information stealing, downloading files or something like that. And really what's happening here is there's some sort of vulnerability that they're using to inject the malware into these pages. Someone loads a page, they get delivered a pop-up or a leg- or illegitimate link or something along those lines. And then, you know, the user downloads something or provides information that they shouldn't or something like that. So uh, the other thing to keep in mind is this can also come down to WordPress credentials. Uh, some folks will deploy WordPress instances with default credentials or well-known credentials or predictable credentials, even worse. And that can, of course, can lead to compromise as well. And then from there, it's just kind of what do you want to use your compromised WordPress for? And I think that's what we're seeing in this case is just a continued exploitation of WordPress instances because they're out there, they're plentiful, and it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's not terribly hard if you've got vulnerable code facing the internet. Kaspersky is reporting that Nokayawa ransomware attacks are being seen in the wild exploiting a Windows Zero Day. The exploit supports different versions and builds of Windows, including Windows 11. The exploit is highly obfuscated with more than 80% of its code being quote-unquote junk elegantly compiled into the binary. 
Microsoft assigned CVE 2023-28252 to the common log file system elevation of privilege vulnerability and a patch was released on April 11, 2023, as part of the April Patch Tuesday. Normally, we see APTs exploiting zero days, but this is being exploited by a sophisticated cybercrime group. What can we tell our listeners about this exploit, and do we know anything about the group behind this? Yeah, so first off, a huge hat tip to Kaspersky for reverse engineering and providing the Nokoyawa information to us. Uh, interestingly enough, this is, I think, detected in February 2023, so we're coming up on about two months of this perhaps being in the wild, if you will. And once again, folks, uh, it has been a patch was released last Tuesday, April 11th. So I am going to highly recommend you're out there patching if you're not already. Uh, This is something that is yet another type of vulnerability that we see in the wild being explored in the wild. Kaspersky does do an interesting note and describe that it is not actively being exploited by APTs. It is being used by a sophisticated cybercrime group that carries out ransomware attacks. Uh, Full disclosure for anyone, whenever we read about a threat actor and the word sophisticated is in there, usually we tend to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Lawyers use that to describe an attack that wasn't detected sometimes, but a group like Kaspersky who's using that adjective is likely describing some advanced techniques that they've seen this group use before. Uh, When you have a well-known security firm labeling a group as a sophisticated group, I hope a lot of times that's leaning on, look, we've studied their their TTPs and, and we know what they're capable of doing. I don't think they've mentioned exactly which group is behind it at this point. Not that it necessarily matters for anyone who's out there and is worried about patching. I would highly recommend you patch before we worry about who's behind it. But that being said, the fact that it is a cybercrime group likely to deploy ransomware, I think just kind of amplifies the need or perhaps maybe even hastens the need to get to patch because it's not a, you know, long-term campaign or some sort of APT level campaign, maybe with very specific targets that are exploiting it. It it is a ransomware threat actor. So it's just a matter of time. Uh, So this particular vulnerability takes advantage of the CLFS, which is a log file subsystem that's been around since uh, Windows, uh, Microsoft Vista, I believe, Windows Server 2003 Vista era, things like that. It is in the CLFS driver that's out there. The file system can be used by any application, and Microsoft also provides an API for it. There's a bunch of different API calls that are available for you to use in the environment. Again, the API is there. However, the file format, the things that log files get written to, is undocumented, and they are usually typically only dealt with or only addressed, if you will, via the CLFS API. The particular vulnerability that's out here, I believe, has to do with the way that the base log file is written. So the vulnerability gets triggered by manipulation of the base log file, that BLF file format. Long story short, uh, and Kaspersky, thankfully, does not go into details about how to exploit it, even though they did reverse engineer the malware and figure out what it does. Uh, I appreciate them not releasing the details out there. However, at this point, I think the best thing for folks to do is to implement that patch. Chris, you did mention it is extended all the way to Windows 11, which is, you know, the latest and greatest. So we definitely want to make sure we've got patches deployed for this. And this is something that I hope will not see widespread usage of. However, the fact that it's been in the wild for at least two months now is obviously a little bit of concern. One thing I'll note from this podcast, and Chris, this is something that we'll keep keep tabs on as well. 
you know, if we do see or hear any more information about this one in the future, we'll certainly come back and bring it up and talk about it as well. Again, a hat tip to Kaspersky who said, hey, we're not going to release details about how to do this uh, because we don't want anyone else, anyone else to take advantage of it. And they did also say we'll release vulnerability details after patches have been applied and things like that. So again, huge hat tip from one security group to another for not releasing that and again, helping folks kind of deal with this particular zero day as it's out. Yeah, it's great. They're giving everybody some lead time because... You know, you take this super advanced technique and put it in the hands of everybody, it's going to end really badly. You know, it's one of those situations, and we see this happen in information security way too often, where someone discovers a vulnerability, they can't wait to publish a blog post or put up a Git repo that has that proof of concept in there. And it only takes a matter of time before it's weaponized or it's deployed in mass, if you will, and then subsequently thrown up against the internet. And the amount of folks who fall victim to someone's opportunistic Git repo is unfortunately way too large, way too large. So uh, I'm really thankful to see this. And this isn't just Kaspersky. Uh, This is their article that we kind of based this portion of the segment off of. So I'd like to give credit wherever credit's due to any security firm who says, I know how a bad thing can be done, but I'm going to withhold those details to give folks time to patch. And we always appreciate that. Cato Labs researchers recently encountered an emerging Python-based credential harvester and hack tool named Legion aimed at exploiting various services for the purpose of email abuse. Finally, a malware name that I can easily pronounce. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, the tool is being sold via the Telegram Messenger and includes modules dedicated to enumerating vulnerable SMTP servers, conducting remote code execution, exploiting vulnerable versions of Apache, brute-forcing cPanel and web host manager accounts, interacting with Shodan's API to retrieve a target list which provides you an API key, and additional utilities, many of which involve abusing AWS services. What kind of attacks are we talking about when we say email abuse? And is this hijacking an email server to send out spam or actually spoofing or hijacking legitimate email for the organization as a means of deception? So I think what I read based on this, this is an interesting one for sure. I think what I read based on this one is it's kind of like an all-in-one script, if you will. I I feel like, and oddly enough, uh, Cato's Cato's research of this even mentions the fact that it is a um, 21,000 line Python 3 script that's being sold here. So that's, first off, that's a huge undertaking. It's a lot of code, right? Now, granted, just looking at it here, some of the code is, you know, there's 18 lines of configuration of uh, variable settings. So it might not be, you know, 21,000 lines of of extremely in-depth interactive Pythonic code, but even still, it's pretty long there. But but what I think we've got here, especially after reading a little bit about what this script is able to do or what this piece of malware is able to do, it's kind of a combination of a bunch of different feature sets here. Utilizing Shodan to retrieve a target list, enumerating vulnerable SMTP servers, trying to brute force cPanel and web host manager accounts. Uh, looking then perhaps the most interesting one is some utilities that abuse AWS services and try to add accounts to the IAM portal or IAM panel. I think these are all, Chris, like individual little steps that you would see maybe a script created for or, you know, a red teamer or an attacker might have a folder of scripts that does these different things. And I think maybe in this case, and again, I haven't looked at the script myself, but I think what we're seeing is probably a combination of a bunch of different scripts being brought together that kind of automate or perhaps maybe one button, if you will, the types of features and the types of things that people are doing here. You know, um, again, enumerating vulnerable SMTP servers and brute forcing cPanel accounts. 
those aren't necessarily always related and not in the same target list or the same victim list. So I think it might be one of those kind of, you know, choose your own adventure tools. And looking at the way that it works as well, the the Legion Priv 8 exploit bot, you know, you get in there and, and you're kind of choosing what you want to do here. You're choosing whether you'd like to run an SMTP cracker or an RCE exploit or an Apache exploit. And I think it's just a bunch of code being brought together into one place. It doesn't lessen the potential impact of this. One thing I, I will note is that the researchers also identified a YouTube channel that showed folks how to use this that always lowers the barrier of entry. And of course, obviously, anyone who grabs a hand of this can then start to utilize it, which is something we don't like. The other thing that would perhaps be potentially concerning is the credential harvesting capabilities that it's got. Uh, this is one where it is utilizing a bunch of different methods to retrieve credentials from misconfigured web servers. This is maybe perhaps the worst part of this combined script if I had to identify one, primarily because this is where you'll see perhaps the most impact. Um, this is where there are a bunch, and I'm talking, you know, I think there's at least two dozen or so hard-coded paths to try against servers that looks for misconfiguration, some potential PHP vulnerabilities and things like that. These are all areas where organizations, unfortunately, even with really solid security programs, may end up falling victim just because they didn't you know, secure the right environment file or credentials file or YAML or something like that, in which case the script's going to have some success. So I would say that would be something to look out for. And then the, the AWS capabilities, too, are really, really something that's up there. It is trying to take advantage of, of AWS's SES or simple email service, um, looking to, you know, create a group and create a user and perhaps give themselves permission to the AWS instance and things. I think it's just a combination of nasty things, but I would say for, for every part of this script, it's just another area for us as security folks to kind of make sure we've got you know locked down or we've got monitoring around and things like that. Yeah, and it sounds like we should all be going to YouTube and making copyright claims against their channel. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure it, it's that freedom of press thing, right? Where you're kind of like, I want everyone to be able to talk about anything. And then you come across a channel that shows you how to, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming the channels have some sort of, you know, not for uh, criminal uses disclaimer on it. I saw a Twitter thread earlier today where someone was talking about how to break chat GPT out of its guardrails to get it to write malware for you. And at the bottom of the first tweet, someone just said, use only for good purposes. And, and that was it. It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like I, I, I give you everything you need to, to break into a store. I put you next to the store. I tell you the weakest spot of the window. I show you everything you need to could successfully complete this crime. And then I just casually say as I'm walking away, I'm like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, don't do anything bad. You know, and I see you later. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, all right, well, that was interesting. So I'm assuming this site's probably the same way. Or it's just threat actors have gotten so brazen that they will just happily say, yeah, you don't you need a how to go to YouTube. Got you covered. Yeah. yeah. You never know. Huh. Uh, IBM Security X-Force recently discovered a new malware family they're calling Domino. The malware was created by developers associated with everybody's favorite Fin7 group that had their Jira and chat log history leaked online back in the day. Former members of the TrickBot and Fin7 syndicate have been using Domino since at least late February 2023 to deliver either the Project Nemesis information stealer or more capable backdoors such as Cobalt Strike. Obviously, I think people should be aware of this from a threat perspective, but it is also another one of those fascinating glimpses into the business side of cybercrime where we see these groups working together. 
Is this something that happens regularly, or is this an early sign of maturation in the cybercrime world? So this is an interesting one. When I saw this article and read through it, first off, the Conti Syndicate, the Fin7 group, whatever you, however you want to refer to them, was a pretty prolific group in their day. Of course, there's obviously some press releases and some DOJ indictments out there that they essentially got shut down. But the uh, IBM's X-Force is attributing this activity to former members of that particular group of that syndicate, saying that these folks are likely behind these recent campaigns. So first and foremost, uh, interestingly enough, the X-Force does say that they probably collaborated with current or former ITG developer, ITG 14, which is their threat group denomination, um, went through and likely worked with that particular group. I think this is something that is usually rooted in some interesting metadata characteristics or shared qualities or something that you'll see between different pieces of malware. And I would go as far as to say, like, IBM's X-Force, I don't think, throws these types of attributions out for for fun or based off of very loose evidence. So I'm hoping, and I haven't read through, obviously, every single correlative value that they've got, but I will say the article from X-Force that talks about this has some really technical deep dives into how the malware in the backdoor works, and specifically the domino backdoor. There's the Dave loader, the domino backdoor, the domino loader. Then they get into Nemesis Project and they touch on Cobalt Strike a little bit as well. Um, But there is some really, really crazy metadata and analysis in here. So again, a huge hat tip for them for some really good reverse engineering skills. And it's it's a long blog post, Chris. I don't know if you read through the whole thing, but it's got a lot of details behind it. It's pretty long. Uh, When it comes to these types of attributions and things, I don't think this is that much of a surprise. I think we've talked in this podcast before about the maturation or the growth of threat groups. You know, imagine, Chris, you and I started a band with three of our friends. And this happens in in rock music all the time, by the way. If you ever go and read the history of some rock stars or rockers, I don't know which word you want to use. It is 2023, so let's say rock stars. I'll pick Dave Grohl as an example, right? Uh, I don't know if a lot of folks know that Dave Grohl, of course, he's the lead singer of, of the Foo Fighters. But he also did a lot of work with Nirvana back in the day. You know, he was he was their drummer. So it's, I view it as kind of one of those things where you've got these folks who have just been around in this community for a long time and held different positions. And they've just kind of matured and grown as time's gone on. You know, and if, if we go deeper into this one, and I'll use this analogy because it works out really well. There were some folks who were maybe guitarists for Foo Fighters at one point who were backup performers for Nirvana. Right. So if I kind of correlate across these two bands alone, there's a circle of people who kind of stay together and they play together and they ha- they but they go through different roles. Right. Dave wasn't always the front man. He was the, the, the drummer at one point and then he became the front man and then an advocate for this band. And long story short, I'm using a rock analogy to describe how malware groups may end up coming together because it's, it's the exact same principle. You've got folks who work together in a community. And as you know, regardless of what we may think of their chosen profession, it is their chosen profession. And they end up developing this rapport with people. They end up developing skills. They have a reputation. And let's be clear, right? You know, you and I, Chris, we might go to a concert. We might say, oh, that guy or girl on stage is one of the best guitarists I've ever seen. They may be at a coffee shop and they say that person can write an exploit like no one I've ever seen. It's the same odd type of admiration of skills, you know? In any event, what happens over time is you get this reputation that gets developed and you don't get caught by law enforcement. 
And another threat group comes along and says, hey, I'm trying to write a backdoor or I'm trying to write an information stealer or something like that. Hey, hey man, you've got some skills and some cred. You want to work together? You know, and, and next thing you know, they, they're there and you start to see these things. Where I think it gets interesting, which is what IBM's X-Force has hit along, is that you start to see some of the relationships and some of the behavior that carries over. So let me extend my analogy a little bit further. Let's take that band analogy, that rock star analogy, and let's say you had someone who was a drummer 20 years ago and they're a guitarist today, but you know they tap their foot to the same beat regardless of what instrument they play, right? That's a, a behavioral characteristic that tracks with that person no matter what they're doing or wherever they go. Uh, malware authors tend to be very similar to that, where they've got these behavioral traits, these you know, these things that stick with them, in this case, we'll call them like code overlaps or metadata overlaps or perhaps, you know, C2 communications. There's ways that malware authors do things that kind of stays with them. I don't want to go as far as to call it their trademark because it's not always something they do intentionally, but it's just things that stay with them. And it's things that then become characteristics that we use to attribute malware authors. And I think that's what's happened in this case. IBM's X-Force goes through a really good job of talking about the connections between ITG 23 and 14, 14 being Fin 7. So what are the connections between the, you know, the past and everything? Um, but they've gone through and performed some really interesting analysis on some of the loaders, some of the samples that are shared between the two. Similar coding style, similar functionality, same configuration structure, similar bot ID formats, share code overlap with the Lazar malware. I mean, there's a bunch of different metadata points that are there. And this, I think, tends to once again be a good behavioral identifier of malware authors that are out there. Look, Chris, I, you know, let's say you, you, you write in Python and someone says, hey, man, can you help me build a Python website? Sure, let's do it, right? Let's let's say I like to use, you know, Flask, for example, as a library, right? Five years from now, someone comes to me and is like, hey man, can you help me write a website? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. There's my there's my work that I've previously done, right? There's my sample. Uh well, I'm just gonna copy this, copy that, copy that. Boom. All right, you're up and running, you know? Repeat that four, five, six times over. And next thing you know, someone's like, dude, every time you ask this guy Matt to write a website, he always just copies this Flask code over. Well, Imagine you've got a really good malware loader that still works. Why are you going to reinvent the wheel? So I think, again, it's really cool to read about some of the similarities you see between these two threat groups. Uh, I think for anyone who's interested in this sort of attribution or this sort of growth and maturity that we see from the cybercrime perspective or cybercriminal perspective, definitely go check this article out. It's got some really cool notation about how the two different groups are, are potentially related. And I think, once again, it's fascinating to read about these because what you're seeing here, everyone, you're seeing the, they talk about a file, Thunderbolt service that was used to load the Carbonac backdoor. Uh, they talk about that in use back in late 2015. We're recording this episode in April 2023. And I think it's just fascinating to sit and look at malware from a seven and a half to eight year perspective. You know, you're watching a history lesson unfold and it's, Think, you know, think, think 50 years from now, right? We'll talk about a piece of malware or a loader or an executable or something. That loader, let's say it had a 20-year shelf life, right? That particular executable was abused for 20 years before it was no longer abused. 
and we're sitting in year eight of that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. I'm sitting in the middle of this timeline that's happening right now, and I get to see the history unfold. So I don't have any admiration for the malware authors whatsoever, but I do appreciate the researchers who are able to identify the behavioral similarities and then use those to potentially track similarities over time. So again, huge, huge hat tip to the folks over at X-Force for providing that for us. And uh, as always, I'll link all of the articles that we're referencing in this talk in the show notes of the podcast on whatever platform you're listening from. Um, Lockbit is back in the news. The ransomware group has created encryptors targeting Macs for the first time, likely making them the first major ransomware operation to specifically target Mac OS. How big a deal is this and what is the goal here? I could be wrong, but this would be specifically targeting endpoint users as organizations don't build out their infrastructure using Apple hardware. Yeah, so this one, I will note for everyone here, I believe this one is actually kind of an ongoing, changing thing that's happening. This is a collection of files that were discovered, a bunch of ransomware encryptors that were discovered by a cybersecurity researcher malware hunter team who found a zip file on VirusTotal that contained a bunch of different lockbit encryptors. And there were some containing uh, encryptors dedicated towards, or should I say maybe focused on, other types of CPU architectures, Mac OS, ARM, FreeBSD, MIPS, and Spark CPUs, which really just kind of is you know, almost encompassing of the entire spectrum that's out there. I will say that even though that was found, it would I'm, I'm equating this to uh, imagine if you're a programmer out there, for anyone who maybe have written code before, you've probably got a folder of a bunch of different projects of things you were trying out, you know, random API calls you were just testing or something like that. I think that's probably equating to what's happened here is that there are some folks out there just kind of testing things. Um, there's references again to the different CPU architectures that we see in there. There are also some references below, uh, you know, within the encryptor itself that do pertain to some Mac files. And this is again, specifically towards uh, Apple's own chip, the M1 or M2 chips, if you will. However, a lot of researchers have come back and said, this just looks like testing. This looks like folks are just probably trying to test out whether this type of encryptor can use. They haven't been used in any actual attacks. There's no evidence to my knowledge as of this recording that these types of encryptors have actually been seen out in the wild. And then there's even further research where someone kind of breaks down the metadata of these and says, you know, in their current form, they aren't really going to be able to do anything. They're unsigned, so they won't run on macOS and they don't take into account some of the other protective mechanisms that macOS has in place. So as of right now, if someone were to try and find this code and run it, you'd likely get nothing uh, back from it. Again, an interesting take on this. I will say I don't think it should be a surprise to anybody that malware authors, particularly ransomware authors, are trying to find ways to target operating systems. I will simply say with confidence that Macs don't get viruses. Therefore, you no, I'm just kidding. I can't say that, obviously. <laughs> but uh, it is, you know. It's been one of those long-standing kind of jokes that Macs don't get malware and, you know, you want to protect yourself, just get a Mac and stuff. I will say that it is, while the malware population swings heavily in the other direction towards Windows, Macs are not immune to malware whatsoever. And the other thing that I'd, I'd mention, too, is, you know, don't be surprised if at some point in time some malware author figures it out. Right. It's, it's entirely possible. I'm, it's going to be much more difficult than Windows, but it could, again, be you know, a little bit tough. Now, I will say 
interestingly enough, and I love the fact that this is out there, and Chris, this goes directly towards the cyber crime infrastructure that we've talked about before. There is a update at the end of this article dated yesterday, April 16th. In response to questions, the public-facing representative of LockBit, the public-facing representative of the LockBit group, said that the Mac encryptor is actively being developed. I don't know if we expected any other response. So if anyone reads into that response and sees it as anything other than predictable, there's no ransomware group in the world that if you ask them, are you developing something for another operating system, is going to come back and say, no, we're not smart enough to figure that out. Obviously, they're going to come back and say, yep, you better believe we're going after it. It's a good way to heighten street cred, drum up some business. Chris, you know as well as I do, right? These are organizations. They, they've got marketing. They've got spokespeople. They've got representatives. They've got front pages. Of course, I'm going to make my group look good and say, yeah, of course, we're developing this thing that everyone's going to want to buy. Oh, it didn't work for you? Must be your problem because it works for me. Buy more. Yeah, so not a threat, but definitely a sign of things to come. Sign of things to come. I like that. We are seeing the real-world actions of the Black Hat or Alfie ransomware group that we covered a few weeks ago on the show. Apparently, they hit NCR, an American company that provides digital banking, payment processing, and point-of-sale systems for restaurants, businesses, and retailers. As a result of their point-of-sale system, the Aloha platform has been suffering an outage since last Wednesday. This is another example of the real-world impacts of these cyber attacks. This disruption means that 3,288 restaurants are unable to provide service, and more devastatingly, the people that work at these restaurants who rely heavily on tips and are living paycheck to paycheck can't make any money. I'm sure some of them are getting by with pen and paper, but most people don't carry cash anymore, and I'm sure the businesses are suffering hugely. Given that they've been down for almost a week, what are the chances that this gets resolved soon? In a case like this, is it better for the company to just pay the ransom? And how long do negotiations generally take? It helps to understand the architecture of how this might be working here. I personally have not touched an Aloha POS in a very, very long time. However, you have to think about the way that some of this software and some of these things get deployed. Aloha or NCR itself is the parent company. The the parent company being hit does not necessarily determine, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, does not necessarily determine whether the you know clients of theirs get hit, for example. Um, let's let's just hypothesize and say that you know a car manufacturer got hit by ransomware that shouldn't shut down the cars. They should be you know kind of self-contained, if you will. I think in this case, what's happened is, and again, uh, trying to understand the architecture here and not having touched Aloha in, in a long time. What is a little concerning is the fact that the parent company got hit, but the POSs themselves are down, which probably shows some sort of, you know, maybe SaaS offering or some sort of link back to the NCR platform. And NCR itself, I believe, is a payment processor as well. So it's not just the touchscreens that you see in restaurants, but it's also the fact that they're processing the payments. So you've got a combined use platform here, Aloha being both the menu ordering system, the point of sale, if you will and the payment processor, which is nice from a supply chain consolidation, but it also means if you get hit here, you're also going to get hit over there. So in that case, I'm hoping that this gets resolved soon. Um, I'm hoping that someone went after NCR and just locked up their systems, isn't you know demanding uh, extortion or anything like that, because they are a large company. And they've, you know, unfortunately, probably got some money. So we hope they don't get held for an extortion and don't have to pay for anything there. I'm hoping, again, it gets resolved soon because there should be a backup option. There should be a way to go through different means to process payments. 
I hope, right? We don't want to have single points of failure in any of these. And, and that may be the same for restaurants or, you know, the, their, their customers, if you will. It may also be NCR has another way to work through this as well. Um, it just depends on kind of where in the infrastructure the ransomware actually hit. Um, and of course, that's going to be dependent on what we know versus what we what we don't. But it's going to, again, result in, uh, unfortunately, you know, however long the investigation takes is going to be pursuant to how much or how bad they got hit. Number one, it's going to pertain to where in the environment they got hit. Uh, it's also going to depend on how bad or how uh, extensive the adversary's attack was. I will say NCR has come out and has admitted that they have been attacked. So on April 13th, the outage was the result of a ransomware incident. There are some folks worried about making payroll, as you talked about. Uh, there have been some Aloha customers who have kind of come public and talked about the things that they've run into, um, you know, paper and pen method, as you talked about. And it's just kind of really a, a pain in the butt for everyone. And as much as we don't like to hear about that, I will say that there are obviously alternate means that are out there. I'm not telling anyone what to do and how to run their business. But I will say that, you know, there are other means to collect payment out there. There are other things that, that you could certainly go through. Unfortunately, when you get restaurants that are heavily dependent on kind of single software stacks like that, you're going to run into this case. And that's not a blame on anybody. It's just a realization that unfortunately, when customers like this get caught, you know, they end up falling victim to some pretty big attacks. With that being said, from a negotiation perspective, I, I do not have insight and I haven't seen it anywhere yet on what the adversaries are demanding, what the Black Cat group is demanding. Uh, it may be uh, enough money that they would bring it down. It may be an entire doesn't matter what you pay us. It may be a ridiculous amount of money. I'm hoping the negotiations will result in uh, NCR being in the best position. And a huge, huge, huge group of kudos to the incident responders who are on the ground having to deal with this, because I'm sure there's a team of folks who are pouring through forensic evidence right now to try and figure out what happened. And a huge kind of, you know, we're standing by with you or brothers in arms, sisters in arms, whatever it might be. Hope that y'all are making it through this incident response. Okay, because this is a uh, this is a big attack. And I think it's going to be one that is hopefully going to make some changes at NCR and give them a chance to rebuild part of the network and just have a better security stack afterwards. And again, I'm not saying they didn't before. It's just more of a, uh, you know, a breach is a good, not a good way, but it is a way to find out what's wrong with your environment and, you know, then things that need to be fixed in the future. So I hope they take that advantage. This one should catch the attention of Chrome shops like us. Google on Friday released out-of-band updates to resolve an actively exploited zero-day flaw in its Chrome browser making it the first such bug to be addressed since the start of the year. Tracked as CVE 2023-2033, this high-severity vulnerability has been described as a type confusion issue in the V8 JavaScript engine. Clement Lassine of Google's Threat Analysis Group, I hope I said your name right, uh, has been credited with reporting the issue on April 11, 2023. How serious is this? And given that Google reported nine zero days in Chrome last year, is it maybe not the super safe platform it's been made out to be? Yeah, so I don't think we can go that far. I think it's still a very, very, very safe platform. You know, full disclosure, Chris, you and I are both Chrome OS users. Um, we, we, we like it for that exact reason. It's not as vulnerable as others. But of course, like you and I have both said on this podcast before, code is code. Right. Code is code. Software is software. Flaws and vulnerabilities and things like that. They happen. They pop up. And I'm not giving a pass to anyone because it's Google or because it's Chrome OS. 
I think it's just they discovered a vulnerability. They went and fixed it. And it's an update out there that everyone should certainly get if they can. It was a type confusion in V8 in Google Chrome prior to a very long version number. Long story short, if you need to update Chrome, update it. Uh, I will say that if you go to the help about menu, you can see what version you're at and then use that to your advantage to determine if you need to update or not. Uh, Google did acknowledge that an exploit is out there in the wild, but they didn't share any other details. However, uh, for anyone curious what I've read about this, according to NIST's webpage, it allows a remote attacker to potentially exploit heap corruption via a crafted HTML page. I do not know how publicly this is being used in the wild. Uh, it may be one of those things that is being done in a very targeted approach from a very targeted watering hole perspective or something along those lines. But again, it's going to depend entirely on kind of knowing your target or knowing your victim and knowing what they're going after. I don't think this puts too big of a blemish on Google's security record whatsoever. One thing that I'm always a huge fan of, and I know other folks in security are as well, is disclosure and openness, as well as just being a company that recognizes when there's a security incident and owning it and fixing it as quickly as you can. And there's plenty of announcements from Google out there. There's a recognition of what's happening. There is credit, right? It uh, it was discovered by someone in Google's tag or threat analysis group, which I, I always like when someone's finding it internally. You know, Google's always very upfront about we have discovered our own vulnerabilities if we need to. The one thing that some folks may be a little upset about is that there's no technical specifics or IOCs out there. Again, I think this goes right back to what we talked about earlier with Kaspersky. Knowing how something is being exploited from an internal perspective is nice because it gives everyone a chance to patch and to upgrade before it becomes super crazy public. I'm sure there's a you know at least one person out there who read this disclosure and tried to reverse engineer it as soon as they possibly could. We want to beat that person. We don't want to have the POC or the code get released before that person uh, sorry, before everyone can start to, to apply some patches. So from that aspect, uh, I like the fact that we don't know as much as we should just yet. I like some of those details being withheld. So I don't think, again, it throws a blemish on Google's record. I think it's just software being software, and we've got to just be careful on our updates and patch when we can. Awesome. Well, I can see we're at time, Matt. So thank you again for joining us. This is such a fun segment to do every week, and uh, I always learn something. Likewise, Chris, huge, huge thanks to you. Thanks for having me here. And I can't leave without again giving huge props over to the folks over in the Intel channel. I'm looking at it right now. We actually had some more things posted as we were recording this. So we've already got stuff to talk about again. But that being yeah. said, thanks to everyone. Chris, thanks again for having me here. Yeah, take care, man. Bye. Thanks. And that concludes episode number 28 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.